You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The Tribeca Film Festival is one of my favorite events of the year. It's an opportunity to watch movies and to hear from some of the finest directors and actors in the business discussing their work. The festival has just launched a new podcast, Tribeca Talks, which will allow all of us to listen into the conversations that happen each year at Tribeca. Last year, I was lucky enough to sit down with director Guillermo del Toro, and I'm pleased to present that conversation to my Here's the Thing audience. Take a listen to Tribeca Film Festival's new podcast, Tribeca Talks. This is Tribeca Talks our favorite conversations recorded live at the Tribeca Film Festival. I'm Leah Sarbib. Academy Award-winning director Guillermo del Toro sat down with acclaimed actor Alec Baldwin as part of our 2019 director series. Here's Tribeca's CEO and co-founder, Jane Rosenthal, with the introduction. It's my great honor tonight to introduce to you two amazing cinephiles who are both masters at their craft, Guillermo del Toro, As you know, and many of you are fans of, his work from Crimson Peak, Pacific Rim, Hellboy, Pan's Lambert, Blade Two, Devil's Backbone, Kronos, and of course, the Academy Award winning The Shape of Water. Joining him in conversation is a great friend of Tribeca, an extraordinary actor, producer, someone who I've personally had the privilege of of watching him work up close when De Niro directed him in The Good Shepherd. Lately, the two have been collaborating on SNL, in case you haven't seen that. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alec Baldwin and Guillermo del Toro. Thank 
If I break the chair, which has happened, please help me get up. I, I, I was going to say, if I break the chair, which has happened, don't help me up. I'm going to lay here and take a nap. Um, you know, it, it happened on, on live television uh, in, in, in Telemundo. I, I came in with a, with a tray of tamales. And I sit in the sofa and it goes, Poo! horrible. And it's kind of flimsy. Well, um, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> Who's that guy? Well, Marvin Davis was a guy, he was a big guy. And I came to an event once, it was some big fundraiser at the Beverly Hills Hotel years ago. And these guys came in with a big chair, like a throne. It was this massive wooden carved chair with this ornate fabric. And I said, what's this? They said, this is Mr. Davis's chair that he travels with everywhere. And they put the chair there at the table, and he sat down, and I thought, man, that sounds like a great idea. I should have my own chair that people carry around for me. I, and believe it or not, it's the first thing I look at, because sometimes I don't fit, and I sit like a muffin, kind of like, you know, spilling. This one, I can do the edge on. I'm glad my kids aren't here, because they would put butter on you and eat you right they now. They would, they would. <laughs> I'm a good guy to travel through the Andes in a plane. <laughs> Now, now, speaking of affording your own chair, I think that, you know, your career is going so miserably lately. Uh, it's just so terrible what's been happening for you uh, that maybe you can't afford your own chair. But I want to go back with you, and I want to go back because I'm so ignorant about film education and how you begin a career like yours. And, and, and apparently, you uh, took this with your father's Super 8 camera when you were a child, correct? Yeah. I was, I was about eight, and my dad used to get... Uh, like he had a car dealership, and sometimes people gave him technology as payment. This is Mexico in the 60s, 70s, you know? And, and they gave him this camera and this projector. And I didn't know anything, but I, I started buying Super 8 reels. Uh, they would condense a movie into one reel. So I bought The Crimson Altar with Boris Karloff, and I bought Night of the Demon. And I was projecting them, and then I said, what is the camera for? And they said, that's what you make movies with. And before that, I thought movies were something that happened. And, and somebody was there to record it somehow. Yeah. But they were things that happened. The people's soul just yeah, left onto they, the they camera. Said, oh, look at that giant reptile destroying the city. Yeah. And, and, and I, started shooting, I started shooting those Super 8s. And, but where uh, would you get the films? Like, what was the market then? No internet? No, like, no where would you they came the in cartridges, and then you took that cartridge to the pharmacy, and you deposited it in the pharmacy, and they said, come back in seven days. And they would send it to Mexico City. I lived in Guadalajara, which is the second... Viva la cajeta coronado. And they sent it, and seven days later it came. And I, I tell you this, the... The greatest thrill I've ever had was the day I projected that first reel. Because there was a displacement. I, I said, I did that, yeah. that is in the screen where I see right. the Crimson Altar. Right. And, I don't, and there was a magical moment. There's a, there's a great story by Harlan Ellison called The Cheese Stands Alone. And it's a guy that goes to a little antique shop and uh, a guy tells him, what is, he says, what is in that little box? And he says, if you open it, you'll know, you'll relieve your greatest moment. It can be 30 years from now, or it may have already happened. I think that's my greatest moment. <laughs> right, right. And, and he opens it, and it's a home run when he's seven. 
and he knows now that he'll never be he'll never that. he'll never top that. And that that rejecting of that super eight. But but no cutting, no editing. You had to shoot no, no, like, like Hitchcock with rope. You had to shoot <laughs> yes, the whole exactly. thing in one shot. I, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I was I was just shooting uh, my my toys, my action toys, killing each other. Yeah. And I would throw, I would make a plasticine guy fill it with ketchup and go to the roof and throw it, and it would explode. At the when, when, I, when I was when I was a kid, when my my neighbors had a camera, we were little boys, and one of them used to subscribe to it. Do you, I'm sure you remember this because yeah. of your famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Yes. And you could get the, the, the creature of the Black Lagoon hands uh, uh, yeah. and the head and everything, and they cost a fortune. Them. Yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you had every one of them in your No, tour. no, I saved enough. I had the gorilla hands and the wolfman mask. Right. Which was not entirely accurate, but right. it, it worked. And then I bought. So you were uh, mingling the species even mingling, then. And I had. I bought. The wolfman. I bought the gorilla feet. Which yeah. made no sense, but they looked good. Right. And, and, but I love them. They were done by Don, Don Post. Right. Who was a great mask maker. But that, in Famous Monsters and Mad Magazine is where I learned uh, English with a dictionary on the side. And, and watching on Sundays, they would show Universal Monster movies. And I would listen to what they said and read the subtitles. And that's how I started. At seven, I was fluent in English. Thanks to Famous Monsters. Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. We would do these films, of my, and I would have the Dracula drag on and the fangs, and of course it was silent, there was no sound, and there was no cutting. So you see me holding the woman, which is like the girl who lived next door. She was like, you know, seven <laughs> years old. And you see my friend, like off camera, he's yelling, bite her on the neck. And so you see me go, what? <laughs> and he's like, bite her on the neck. I'm like, oh, I'm like, ah, ah. Yeah. You know, no editing. If you guys go to Google and Google for a moment, there's a photo of me with fangs and eyes drinking my sister's blood. <laughs> and, and you remember the fires in California? Yes. Uh, recently? Yes. My entire, I have a collection of strange crap. And it's two houses of strange crap with secret passages. And, and the fires came very, very close and I escaped. And the next day I came back and I picked up that photograph. I said, um, this is what I want to save from. I want to save the photograph. So when you started uh, and you were a kid, did you, uh, you're doing this and you're experimenting. And of course you enjoy it, which I guess is the one foundation of directing is you have to enjoy it. Directing is so hard. Yeah. And uh, it's such a difficult and, and, and requires so much patience. But when did you start to seriously write? When did you start to write down I already was writing when I started the Super 8s. I was writing short horror stories, uh, not very good, and recording them on a cassette. I would record a radio play because I was born in 64. So I, I, when TV ended around 9.30 o'clock at night, we would lay on the, on the kitchen and listen to radio novellas. You know, we would listen to radio plays. And there was one called uh, Turn Off the Light and Listen. And there was another one called The Mad Monk and this and that, and I would listen to these horror stories. So I said, I'm gonna write them and make them in little cassettes. And uh, uh, you know, what happened is, as a kid I wanted to be, this was my definition of a career. I wanted to be a marine biologist that lived by the sea, studied, uh, studied the creatures of the sea, and wrote horror stories. And I, when I found directing, I said, that tops it, it's better. So I'm gonna do that. But, uh, but I started, uh, I remember uh, 
uh, trying to emulate styles when I was a kid. Such as? Well, uh, and I, it's always had this dichotomy. For English, I was fascinated when I was young by the precise ad ad adjectives that Bradbury would use, no? As a young reader. And in, in Spanish, for me, the two guys that captured the language in a way that is musical for me is Juan Rulfo and uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Well, both, they were tremendous when I was a kid, a big influence. But it's, it took me so many years. When I write a screenplay in English, the thing that I've belabored the most, and I think I finally got it right on Shape of Water, was dialogue. Other than that, I... Finally, you got it right. Finally, yeah, because it's, it's, very, it's, very, it's, very, it's very difficult. Yeah, I understand. When I was writing Shape of Water, I was watching this beautiful documentary, Salesman. Wow which is in the 60s, Bible sales were going to door to door because I wanted to get the rhythm of the language back then. And it's, it's really, it's music. And um, uh, English is very percussive and uh, Spanish is very melodic. We say 10 words and you guys say two or three. You know, we, we say- Well, my wife is from Spain. Una, huh? Well, my wife is from Spain and it can be very percussive too sometimes. <laughs> That's take my word for it. I'm afraid that's concussive. Yeah, concussive. <laughs> it hurts. All I know is it hurts sometimes. It hurts like hell. No, it's, but, a, uh, it's, it's a different rhythm. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, I mean, I, I love scripts. So people will send me a script. I was I read a script recently that my uh, my partner and I have a little kind of micro budget company. We produced a film, and the writer director we we leapt at this opportunity because he did not have an equivalency of everybody's voice. And the muscularity of their language, people who were simple spoke simply. Different. Other people who were very, very intellectual used very you know, kind of $10 words and so forth. And he, and he gave a very specific voice and language to everybody, which I love. The writing dialogue is very difficult for that. That is the, the drama. I think dramaturgy is full of many structural things that you can learn. But the ear to make each person speak as a character completely formed and use the idiosyncrasies and the mistakes or the charming or the overwrought is really, really the art. So when does your formal education down there, like when you're there, I mean, I hate to say this, but you know, in, in the United States, especially in my youth, I'm a lot older now, but in my youth, there was still the kind of you know, gleaming uh, idea of Hollywood and going out to Los Angeles. And now there's the diaspora of film production all over the United States. Oh, and yeah. Now, you know, Atlanta and all this craziness. But when, in Mexico, what was the... Uh, um... In Mexico, I was, I was born and raised in Guadalajara, so there was no... There's always in Mexico, when I was growing up, it was the capital, Mexico City, had everything. Right. We had to go there to learn. We had to Movie and there. TV studios. Yeah, and they had the festivals, blah, blah, blah. So at one point, a group of people in Guadalajara, we got together and we said, there's no school, let's create one. There's no festival, let's create one. That festival, which we created 35 years ago, is now one of the biggest film festivals in, in Latin America. And, and uh, the, the school is the still running. And, uh, and uh, that festival, the first year, I was one of the directors <laughs> with a short film called Doña Lupe. And I was the ticket salesman, the projectionist, and the driver. <laughs> and treasurer. And, and I think that... If I remember, I told you no butter on that popcorn, by the way. <laughs> yes. You disappointed yes. me. I would do that. I would. Right. <clears throat> and, and I think the, the beauty of that, I learned to project. We had a cinema. Back then, you had no, no video cassettes. 
So we had a revival uh, club, which every Saturday and Sunday we would project. We would organize a cycle of movies of Fellini, Hitchcock, uh, Buñuel, uh, and for about eight years, that was a big film education. Uh, but I, I'm an avid reader and an avid watcher. So I read anything I could until puberty hit, and then my interests changed a little. And I read a little less. <laughs> Now, when you, when you were in film school, you attended a film school. Well, we created it, you and created so it. what we did is the first... You started your own film school so you can get into the film I school. I was both... I see. Yeah. That's clever. I, the first year, we brought teachers from Mexico, mostly, and the second year, we were teaching. Right. I, taught, I taught film language, right. and uh, I, I think I, I love teaching. I, to this day, I love teaching. I love explaining... Do you have time for that? You know, I do it now and then. I, do, I still do it now and then. I, I, I have... Um, right now, my focus is animation, and I still go to Guadalajara, and I have a, uh, we're creating a, an animation workshop for stop motion, and I created a couple of scholarships, and I still go to the animators, and I tell them how to structure a screenplay. And, and I love... When you explain something, you really learn it. When you directed your first feature, which yes. was... Kronos. Kronos. So you uh, directed Kronos. You shot in Mexico City? Yeah, yeah, there was... There was uh, I, what, what, what I would have liked as a career, what I would have ambitioned, and I would have loved, was to be a weird guy in Guadalajara doing weird movies in genres in Guadalajara. Uh -huh. So I wanted to do noir, film noir, in my, in my streets. I wanted to do horror in my streets. So Kronos came out of that. I wanted my, I lived with my grandmother many, many years. She was very, very Catholic and exorcised me twice. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, 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 we have a, a... You don't blame her, do you? No, no, I would have done the same. Right, right. I wish she had controlled my car intake, you know, but she, she didn't. She gave me fried chicken at the least provocation. For breakfast, but, yeah. <laughs> here, have some waffles. No, the, the, the thing is, I, I, I felt I wanted to tell a story of a grandfather and a granddaughter. And the grandfather was a vampire, and the granddaughter loved him no matter what. Basically, all my movies are about loving someone no matter what. All of them. And, 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 uh, and I thought, I'll write it for the province. And then we just moved it to Mexico City. That was a very difficult movie to make. Uh, What did you learn when you're on the set making your first feature? Yeah. And, and you have some resources, maybe not as the kind of resources you would eventually have to make films. It's all the same. Yeah, I was going to say, what, was, what were the things that were the, the big learning curve for you in the practical experience of your first film? The thing that you get a horrible, horrible lesson early on, uh, because Kronos took me about eight years to get made. And I remember there was a beautiful scene, which is not in the movie, where he comes back, if, if any of you saw it, the, the guy resurrects and comes back, and he cannot wake up his wife, because she thinks he's dead. He's living in the attic in a toy box. You know, so he went to see her and he wanted to touch her, but he couldn't. And he wanted to lay next to her, but he couldn't. And he laid on the floor and I had a top shot of him laying on the floor. It was like a beautiful little tender scene. And it was one of the scenes that I made the movie for, blah, blah, blah. And it came and things happened and it went wrong and it went away. Mm -hmm. 
And you never forget that. You really, as a director... It doesn't go as you plan. No, but you, you need to know that what you're doing is, an, is you're orchestrating an accident. And you only get one chance at really getting it. And then you move past it. To this day, I have only reshot something uh, once in Pan's Labyrinth, an additional shooting two, three days on, on Pacific Rim. Because you prepare so extensively? I prepare because I say this is what is going to go away. The fear of what is going to go away. You know how people dream that uh, they go to school and they're in their pajamas? <laughs> I dream that I come to the set and, and something goes wrong. <laughs> And, and a set is not ready, or, and I have to, and I, I prepare really well because then there's room for improvement. And, and as you said, the, the, the arc is the same, so that now in your career, where you have this huge career making films, and the budgets are, of course, are so much more significant, but the methodology is the same to you. There's always you prepare same. as extensively now. Well, let me, let me put it this way I have made movies for 1.9 million, and I have made movies for 195 million. Oh, I know. The procedure is, uh, I know. The procedure is exactly the same. Yeah. Because as a director, it's your duty to irresponsibly always exceed the scope, exceed the budget. But we talked about, you know. <laughs> always. Uh, in, other, in, other words, in other words, if you have enough time and enough money, you're fucking up. You, 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 you have grown. I may be fat here, but I'm not fat here. So, you know, here is like a six pack and the. You know, here, super chisel. But, but it's, to, to, to give you an example, uh, uh, Shape of Water yeah. is 19.3 million. And the scope is much bigger. And I remember on, on the first Hellboy, uh, they came in and I had all these things and they said, you have to cut, what was it? You have to cut 7 million. And I said, okay, I'll add an action scene. Yeah. Says, screw you. I'll add an action scene. So I, I added the scene where the pendulum destroys the, the bridge. It was not in the original budget, and we ended up under budget. Still, Shape of Water, we ended up $200,000 under budget. But that is the most amazing thing in, my, in the arc of my work in films, to go now to these super micro budgets where it's like, you know, if I do, uh, uh, you know, like a small role in like Mission Impossible, yeah. and then I go do another movie, and I'm on the set of a movie where I'm saying, the entire budget for this movie is the budget for Tic Tacs on Mission Impossible. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. They, like Mission Impossible, like you can't believe how much money they have. But you to have do... to keep going back and forth. Yeah, no, I do. I mean, yeah. I, you're doing cardio and muscles. You know, you're doing, yeah. you're doing different exercises. When I go to a smaller movie, that's why I used to do an American movie and a movie in Spanish as director because I wanted to force myself to go back to tighten, to tighten the muscles because those muscles, not these ones. And, 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 uh, and what is beautiful about it is you realize, have, I mean, have you ever been on a movie where you go, we have enough time to get this in, right? It's always, you're always, it's a, an oppressive. I had, I had a friend who wrote me into, not I shouldn't say wrote me, he asked me to do a film, good script, good director, and we go to shoot the film and we're shooting uh, the big action scene uh, as a, like a shootout with the cops, I'm this bad guy. And, uh, uh, and we go to Griffith Park, and we're going to shoot, we're going to do night shooting on the shortest night of the year. <laughs> so we have like less time. We're in the, I'm going, okay, fellas, it's the shortest night of the year, and we want to kind of get these shots all lined up. We're sitting at a picnic table. And I said, so we do have video playback. And the guy goes, no, we don't have video playback. That's me. Yeah. And, I, and I, said, I said, I don't want video playback every day 
But for this one day of action, I said, you don't have video playback? And it was a low-budget film where they you know, paid me X, and the guy, and the guy goes, well, we, don't, we don't have any video money for video playback because... <laughs> they pointed at me. And I, I go, what? He goes, well, we gave you all the money we had. <laughs> and we don't have any money. I'm like, you don't have any money to shoot the fucking film? You know? and, but I've learned about that. I, I will do films now, and I'll say, don't pay me this. Yeah. Pay me less. Yeah. So we have a, so we have at least a chance to make a good movie. Well, I'm happy to I'm I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that. No, no, no. Because then uh, there's other movies where we hold their head underwater. By by the way, the day we give a financial talk, don't come. <laughs> you know, because I'm the same way. I put all my salary in Shape of Water, uh, entirely, and I said. Uh, the way, the way I see it is, I say, I collect art, and I want that on my wall. So I'm going to pay for it. Like, I would pay for a painting. So why don't I pay for an extra day? Why don't I pay for an extra little piece of set? I want it. And, and I mean, I think uh, uh, I always find that the rewards are bigger uh, when, emotionally and existentially. When you do that, uh, I think... Uh, I've never done it any other way. I put my money on Pacific Rim. <laughs> I put my money on the first Hellboy, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes they give it back, sometimes they Wait, don't. It's funny, that's a, that's a sign of how the business has changed. I used to play chicken with them. They'd say, well, you know, the director's assistant, uh, the director would say, I can't bring Jeff, they don't want to pay him. And I really, it's really hard for me to do the movie without Jeff. And I call the producer and I say, I'll pay for Jeff. Take Jeff's salary out of my salary. And they do. I want, and in the old days, they'd say that you'd embarrass them, and they go, no, 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 no. Very kind of you, thank you. But we, we, and they, they didn't want to be embarrassed, so they'd pay for Jeff. Now, but starting like a 10 years ago, they go, okay, sure, you pay for Jeff. <laughs> we're on the same, thank you. We're You're the, so sweet. We're on the same face of our salary. <laughs> like, I, I, this week, I was negotiating this and that on something, and I said, I was talking to the studio on the phone, and I said, just so you know, my salary is contingency that I can execute at will. So we, this week, I, that's the conversation. Because if I need an extra day or I need for the night to, because these moments don't come back. They don't come back. If an actor is on the zone and you need that, we're all under pressure anyway, because to direct is hostage negotiations with reality. That's what it is. That is what it is. Directing, you can be Kubrick, Coppola, you can be anyone. The sun still rises at 6.30 for everyone, everyone. The, the winter sets, the week of the whatever. You have a reality. And I think some people think of directing as control. And I think it's about the wisdom of identifying uh, the opportunity in the crisis and not, not, not taking it with fear, but saying we're going to do it. There's a scene in Shape of Water uh, where we were shooting the scene where um, uh, Michael is torturing the, the Russian spy in a sand pit, and we were getting huge wind that was throwing the sand into the camera, uh, into our flesh. The rain was freezing, blah, blah, blah. And, and we lost half a day, and we shot that scene on a techno crane, and me by the side of the techno in the rain, directing the actors and... We, we finished right when the sun was rising. Mm. And I love that. That's the sport. Right. That's the sport. The challenge. That's, that's, why, we, <clears throat> that's why we play. Severe, yeah. The day I go on and say, I have an extra day, something's wrong. 
something's wrong, you have to not have enough. Yeah. I think that real <clears throat> art uh, and real freedom exist only with boundaries. Because it's not a boundary, it's a structure. If you don't have structure, you go mad. Now, now when you made your earlier films, and they're, uh, I mean, obviously they're, uh, and admittedly they're, they're lower budget films. They were early for about five, seven, ten years. Right. <laughs> right. But, but, but at some point, I mean, I'm, I'm not just saying this to be kind. One of the only reasons I wanted to do this with you is because you are known as someone, and I say this, I mean, it really kind of moves me in a certain way, because you are someone who, in a business in which the commercial is, uh, you know, chiseling away at a lot of considerations, and so many companies are, are continuing to stalk the risk-free product, you know, the mm -hmm. risk-free, which is impossible. The risk-free artistic enterprise is impossible. They must risk, but they all pretend that they won't. Mm -hmm. Studios, TV networks, they still wake up every day, they're like, we're gonna go out there and find that risk-free movie, fellas, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 we, and yet you are someone who, the whole world worships and admires you for your artistic soul. You are an artist. You are a great and artist. I, and, I, and when did, when did you, in that way that like the films are doing you, and then one day you start doing them, and you really have the control, what is your artistic sensibility? Is it painting, books? There's such a richness and oh, yeah. tapestry to your film. Well, Where does that come from? I think uh, well, when, I was, when I was very, very young, I, was, I just found the newspaper clippings of this uh, in my mother's house. For many years, I thought there were only three photographs of my childhood. And my mother, God bless her, who is never communicative. I sit and I said, I saved the photograph when I'm the vampire drinking the blood of my sister because I have only three photos and my mother goes, oh no, we have a couple of boxes in the back. <laughs> I'm 54. I'm 54. <laughs> she never told me that. Right. So I go... And, she was going to sell them and make some money. I mean, and that's I, how I get I go, I go and get all that and I find this moment, this newspaper. My father won the lottery in 1969. And he won six million dollars. What? It's 1969. Wow. He won. Now can he, he be my father too? Uh, think about it for a minute. <laughs> he raised us really. He was very strict right. about the way he raised us. He said, "You want that work, you know?" But he won, and 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 uh, so he bought a, a big house and he bought things that he wanted. And what he bought, because somebody advised him to buy a library because a gentleman has a library, right? And he bought a library, and I read it. <laughs> and from then on, I never, I mean, he had an encyclopedia about human health, and an encyclopedia of uh, literature for kids, and an encyclopedia uh, of, the, of, of fine arts. So I learned, at the same time I was learning about Degas, Monet, Manet, uh, Delbois, as I was learning about Jack Kirby, or Bernie Wrightson, or Stan Lee, or, it was the same formative years. So to me, and I was reading uh, omnivorously, I would read. But a, lot of, but a lot of people are led to that water, but they don't drink. Yeah. Do you admit that you, it's an innate thing you have? It's, about, it, it's a it part is. of your soul. It is. I tell you this. I didn't get this size by being measured. <laughs> I, I, You're passionate. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm insatiable about images. I love them. I go to museums. At the, I think that you learn from architecture. You don't learn film from film. You learn part of film from that, but you learn film from the other arts, from life, you know? I think traveling, uh, learning, you, you learn composition in painting, and it applies to film, except it's changing, you know? You learn 
uh, how to stage on, on theater. Your films to me are, people would say to me, I should, I should take this to my, my wife. My wife is not a big movie goer. Mm -hmm. And she would say to me, you know, what is it? What is it about films that you love? And I said, you know, like a film like The Godfather, you know, without picking such a cliched example. I said, in terms of the composition, the lighting, the set design, the costumes, everything, the music, the pace. I said, the, the, the thing is, uh, you know, a work of art, as close to a work of art in cinema as we're ever going to have in, in, in history. I mean, The Godfather is a work of art from the first frame to the last frame. The, the original Godfather. The, the and your films are the same. You remind me of Coppola in well, terms of you, the richness inside the frame. Tell me a thing. When we first met many, we met the first time in 1998 or 99. And you said something to me that I still use. You said to me you were <laughs> about mimic of all things. You said you were getting dressed and you sat by the, the in the bed with one sock in and one sock in your hand. Yeah. And because Mimic was on TV and you said, that's a great image. Yeah. And you started loving the images. Yeah. And I think uh, all art, I was uh, this afternoon with a friend, uh, uh, the painter Julian Schnabel, and uh, we were talking and the, the best definition I've heard he gave today about what art is, something that you feel is a universe you, you want to live in, or a universe that is complete. So when you see an image, you, it's not real. It's something else. It's not a mirror. It's a universe complete in itself, and you know the person there is obsessing. For example, we're preparing a movie we're going to shoot in September. Uh, yesterday, I spent part of my afternoon in antique shops buying the things that go into a suitcase that the character is going to be lugging around. I bought a wallet, I bought uh, money from 1932, I bought a shaving kit that would fit in the bag. I, I started filling it. And I do that uh, for months. Wow. And with Sally Hawkins uh, for Shape of Water, we went shopping and we found the egg timer right. in the movie and the dock that she uses to brush her shoes. We were antiquing and we, I said, let's find a brush, let's find something that your character, because to me it's real. When a, when a movie comes to my head, I can write, I do write the biography of the characters, eight to ten pages for the actor. Mm -hmm. I tell them what the, the character eats, drinks, listens to, watches, likes, dislikes, and I give them a thing that is called, I give them a secret that they cannot share with the rest of the cast. I say, this, you and I are the only ones that know this secret. And, and, and some actors take it, some actors don't. Uh, for example, Richard Jenkins on Shape of Water said, this is great, I'm not gonna use it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? He said, I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do from one take to the next, I wanna be there, I don't wanna think about it. And, and what you learn- I would, I would be the opposite. I, at the very least, I would pretend that I wanted it. You know? Well, I'd yes. say, wow, this is so thoughtful of you. Thank you. <laughs> I'll cherish it always. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> or other things. But in, 20, in 25 years, the only thing that I, I've learned is that uh, the relationship with each actor, each actor is unique. You know, and it really is. And when it works without naming names, because yeah. first of all, clap, just give me one second, clap here if you are in now or are studying to be in the film industry. Clap if, if you are in the shoe industry. <laughs> oh, Why? Well, good. Clap, clap, clap if you want to be a director. Okay, that makes sense. May I clap? Right. 
<laughs> I don't clap because I don't want to be a director. Can I tell, can I tell you something? Has, has everyone seen Miami Blues? <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Clap if you haven't seen Miami Blues. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Anyway. Sorry. Um, yeah. Gotta promote that. That's a movie I made back in the Pleistocene era of my career. <laughs> but, but the, 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 no, the, the um, but when you, uh, in terms of actors, because I think this is instructive for people who are uh, directors, and uh, even if you're working directors or student directors, you know, I say uh, that, you know, actors, they really do want to be directed. They, they want so badly to be directed. Yeah, but in the right <clears throat> way. Well, they want you to say something, meaning it's your movie, Tell me what movie you want to make. Now, the, the decision to make your film, we kind of discern that early on. If you tell me, I want to make a movie about this, and I go, oh, I don't think I want to do that, then I say, thank you, and I tell my agent, just pass, whatever. And you get to a meeting with somebody, and you, know, you, you, you want that clarity. And if you sit with someone, and they describe the kind of film that you want to make, you, know, you want them to just tell me what you want me to do. You know, I mean, you, you've hired me like Nichols. Sure. Like Mike Nichols, it was like, he'd cast, they always say great directing, half of it's casting well, and he'd bring people in, and, and, and he believed you could do what you, that you could achieve what he wanted you to achieve, but he nonetheless told you to what to do. He said, I think you should do this. Uh -huh. And you find when it works with actors, what happens, and when it doesn't work with actors, what happens? <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm only, the, the, the worst mistake I made, I made in Kronos, and I did it, I cast... Uh, someone that brought a very different thing to the table, and I couldn't process it. And I think what you do is you take what they can give, and you work with that, if you, if you, if you are to, to understand the essence, because 50% of directing is casting. If you cast well, you're a good actor's director. You're on your way, yeah. And, and the way I cast is the eyes. Because film is made of eyes. Film is made of uh, a gaze. Either somebody Can looking you read at somebody. Into somebody. Yeah, is there life in those eyes? Right. Is there intelligence? Is there cruelty? Is there compassion? And that you get in, in the first meeting. And then you, get, then you get the essence, and the way I see it is a symphony of eyes. I can have surgery on my eyes to help you. <laughs> if it would make you believe more oh, in my acting. Your eyes are very specific, oh, okay. very specific, man. Very specific. And I think, the, the, for example, to me, the eyes of Octavia Spencer the eyes of, uh, of Sally Hawkins, yeah, the eyes of Richard Jenkins, very yeah. different, each of them. And it's a symphony, because film is symphonic. Film is symphonic. Editing is, is uh, percussive, blah, blah, blah. But there is, there is uh, the actor, if the essence of the character exists there, it has to, it has to be done that way, uh, the casting. And then, what do you do? Well, I learned, I learned a few things that are essentially true. Most directors are afraid of actors. <laughs> are they really? A lot of them are. A lot Movie of, stars or actors? No, uh, both. But here's the deal. The best thing that can happen to a director is to act. And the best thing that can happen to an actor is to direct. Mm -hmm. Because then you understand that those are the two loneliest positions in the set. And what you need to understand is that most actors feel completely alone if they don't know you are there for them watching them, <clears throat> understanding what they're trying and what they're bringing. And then, for example, Richard Jenkins, you go four or five takes before you go in, because he's trying things. And you understand oh. this. Uh, another actor, some actors, will try you with a bad take to see if you say good, 
and then they don't trust you. Random. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they would, you would go, that's great. I, and then he would say, okay, I'm alone. You lose. I'm alone, I'm alone in this endeavor, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you learn all these things. Some, act, some actors need a friend. Some actors need a pal, a, a dad, a brother, a, a, a taskmaster sometimes. Mentor. Yeah, and, and, and you, is, is each act, some <clears> actors <throat> get great on take three, another one in take one. And you need to go, how do I make this? Well, you, 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 you also realize that the, you know, the great, the beautiful thing where time allows is to let it kind of happen. Yes. You know, I mean, Warren Beatty is a great movie star. He's one of the greatest movie stars that ever lived. And I went and did uh, uh, Rules Don't Apply, his, his last film he did with Lily Collins and so forth. And I had a small part in there. And I'm doing a scene, and they had two sets. Uh, we're doing a phone call, and I'm on one set, he's on the other. And he would sit and feed me my lines, and they'd shoot my half. And then he would they'd move the cameras through beyond the wall. He was right 10 feet from me, and they'd shoot him. And on, on his side, I mean, on my side, when he was off camera, he was very subtle and, and very sincere. And <clears throat> then he'd go back and watch the playback. I mean, he's directing the film. Then when we came on his side, I mean, he, he did a scene. He's watching this TV show, and he starts convulsing and crying and sobbing like I never could expect the, the depth of his performance. He was so into it and, and, and just keening in this scene. And we all go to the monitor and we're all watching on the playback and he's standing behind us. And I looked up at him and I was like, oh my God, that was amazing. He looks at me, he goes, every now and then, every now and then. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, this is Warren Beatty, who's famous for doing like 30, 40 takes. But to work with someone who looks at you at the beginning and says, let's take our time. Maybe you're going to get there, take four. Maybe you're going to get there. If you don't get there by take 10 or 12, maybe we should move on or, you know, whatever. But and, and some directors wait for it to happen. No, but we don't want to be like, like looking at their watch. No, know? that's, I tell you, that's, that's a duty that I can, imp that's a, a rule that I can impart here and now to anyone interested in directing. And it's a rule. Your job is, no matter what you have, half a day to shoot a really important scene, whatever it is, you need to create the feeling on your cast and your crew that is enough, that is plenty, that is really great. You know, that, that you're going to take this moment and it's yours and there's no hurry. Sure, you got to get out of there at 3 p.m. and it's <clears> 1.30, still. I always, tell, I always tell the stupidest story over and over again. I do my first movie, uh, the movie Alice with Woody Allen in 1991 or 1990. And in that way, I'm younger. I'm, I'm kind of new to making films. I'd only been making films for a few years. I'm doing this small part with Mia. And, uh, and they said to you, basically, don't talk to Woody, and Woody's not going to talk to you. And he's the director. You're sitting there going, he's the director, and he's not going to talk to you, and don't you talk to him. I'm like, OK, OK, got it, got it. And so in that way, like, where do you get the direction from somebody? Carlo De Palma, who was the DP, yeah. wound up giving me some kind of air sets directing. Mm -hmm. which was difficult because he spoke, spoke hardly any English. <laughs> so my favorite story was, I told this to the DGA one time, or the, or the, the uh, uh, I think it was the DGA, some award show. I said, we would be there, and Carlo De Palma would walk up to me and go, Alec, uh, you, uh, Mia, uh, delight, uh, como se dice? Uh, Alec, you're very good, Alec, you're so good. Uh, but you know uh, me, I go, uh, and I start to read his mind. <laughs> and I go, you don't want me to lean forward in the chair because the light coming through the window? See, 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 I like it so good. It's so good. It's, you're so good, I like it. You're so very good. We get to another take. He goes, I like you, uh, the couch, uh, no, uh, 
come on, sit And I say, I'm a ghost, so I shouldn't sit on the chair because the body of a ghost wouldn't make a dent in the fabric of the chair. He goes, si, 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 I like a si, si, si. You are so very good, I like And you are star, well, it works that, that particular day, maybe. But, but you go on the set as an actor, and you really do want that collaboration. You want, yes. you want them to get what they want. Because yeah, you say, your, 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 your statement here and now, I want to say here and now for actors is that if you're a good actor, you realize the director's making the movie, not you. Yeah. You better get in the same frequency as the director, or you're fucked. You know? Well, what, what, you, what you have to think is, uh, as a director, I'm the guy that turns on the light before anyone shows up. And I'm the guy that turns off the light after everybody leaves. Wall to wall. And uh, wall to wall. And what I'm, I'm watching, it's a mosaic. So that day you're blue. Next day you're purple. Next day you're red. And you are red or purple. Or, and you are just in that state. But I can tell you right now, in this, this may be a good take if we were in minute 10 of the movie. But this is minute 85. Go faster. Mm. Or, or anything like mm. and, and the second thing that I find is very useful is when you're young, uh, that biography that we were talking about, I wrote him from Kronos on, and I would go and talk to the actor about this is the moment when you remember that you were a child and, and all these introspections. And I finally realized they don't want something to think. They want something to do. They need an action. You need an action. You need to know where you are to be present. Kazan said that about Brando. He said he'd start to talk to him. And like five or six words in, Brando would kind of mumble and nod and walk away. Because all he needed was the first five or six words. That's all. And he was off to the race. You go in, and if, you, if your direction needs more than a minute, it's the wrong direction. <laughs> and he took come in and say, look, try this. Like, for example, I, I'll tell you, uh, listen to her lines. And only when she says this, look at her in the eyes. That changes the dynamic because you're ruffling paper, but it's an action. And then you look at her, and it, there's contact. Or uh, in Shape of Water, for example, th there's a scene with Richard Jenkins and, uh, and Sally where she's explaining to him how she feels when the creature looks at her and sees her for what she is. And th they love that scene, and they rehearsed it over and over and over and over again. And the day we did it, it was dead because they had rehearsed it so much. So there was a moment where she grabbed him, and I said, slap him really hard. And I didn't tell him she was slapping him really hard. <laughs> and, and you can see he, he suddenly is alive. And I think you do things. You don't instruct to simulate things. And that shakes the things very nicely. Nicholson told me that, I said, what was it like to do Chinatown? with obviously Polanski, the legendary director directing, and there's John Huston in the cast, who's a legendary director. <clears throat> and Nicholson said that uh, Huston uh, called, uh, referred to Polanski as Roman. Roman. He called him Roman. <laughs> and, and he said that uh, uh, Polanski would hold forth and say all these things, and uh, Huston would say, now Roman, there really are only two directions, a little more and a little less. <laughs> <laughs> This is John Houston. I'm, 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 I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that under advisement. There's something. There's something. Uh, I think that as you as you continue uh, your craft, simplicity reveals itself. Economy. To be the way. Yeah. It, it, uh, in best cases, and and the, the younger you are, the more you think the most baroque solution is the good one. And 
Sometimes it is, but you learn to identify it. No. So before we talk about Shape of Water specifically, which is your latest triumph, I want to say that whenever I want to have, I'm going to say something very, very personal now. And I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I can't help it with you here. I say, you know, uh, whenever I want to have sex with my wife, I go like this, <laughs> and I go like this. You do? And we have four kids in four and a half years. <laughs> It works like a charm. I just go. It's actually like this. <laughs> Down. And she saw the movie with me. She's like, "Aha! Okay, there, Guillermo." <laughs> so, um, uh, the the describe to me because obviously this is a great triumph for you. The genesis of that film. Well, I was. Uh, uh, I've always one of the things that I've always believed is that you should not make the movies you need but the movies that need you, that they wouldn't exist if you didn't make them. You know, I think that's, that's where your voice really resides uh, in doing the things that you want to see but no one is doing, you know? I find it completely terrifying when people say, well, we're doing this because this other movie was successful. That's terrifying. And I fell in love with the Creature from the Black Lagoon when I was a very small kid. And something happened because I saw the creature swimming under Julie Adams, and I thought, this is, the, this is poetry. I was a little kid, and I felt this Stendhal syndrome ecstasies, you know, of the pure beauty. And then later, I was watching uh, The Seven Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe, and Marilyn Monroe comes out of seeing Creature from the Black Lagoon, and she says, the creature just needed a little love, and I fell in love with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> and and those, that collision, somewhat I thought, I've always loved monsters, and I always wanted. Why? Because I think I think that what we we Gives live you freedom. No, well, the we live in a world that right now also tends to, and I think this is a very narcissistic trait, tends to do a dichotomy between black or white, mm. and nobody is black or white. Everybody, all of us exist in between. We, are, we have the right to be polychrome and have any color we need. At 10 a.m., I'm a motherfucker. At 12, I'm a saint. At 1.30, I'm a boogie dancer. At 3.50, we are, we are complex creatures, and I find that monsters give you... Will you call my wife right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, it's 12.30, it's gonna boogie. I'm a polychrome, I'm a polychrome. Well, we are. And I, and I think monsters, we, we live right now in a, in a way where media tells us to, to be perfect. In so many ways, the traditional ones, you have, you have to have perfect hair, perfect teeth. Never let them see you sweat. No, 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 no. Let me sweat, motherfucker. Let me, let me have crooked teeth. Let me have imperfect hair. I don't give a fuck. I want to be a, a, a good human being. There's no commercials for that, you know? And, and, and I really think, I really think that uh, monsters, monsters allow imperfection to be sanctified. We, as I said once, and I repeat it, is imperfection is a goal that we can all aspire to. And it's all inclusive. If we all agree, if we, right now as a world, we agree that we're all fucked up in some way, that we are all imperfect, we would get along better. And, and there would not be this, in, the tyranny of perfection is repulsive. A certain body, 
type, a certain uh, lifestyle, a certain goal is, is torture. It's absolute mental torture, these things. No one can live in those standards. Whereas in standards of imperfection, everybody can live. And I find these monsters so moving because they embody that for me. They embody the other in a way that nothing else does. So what was the beginning of Shape of Water? The beginning was I wanted, I, I wanted to tell the story of uh, a bee monster movie told as a love story directed by Douglas Sirk. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make a movie about the love of movies, musicals, and about how love is not about change. I find this fable of Beauty and the Beast so terrifying and it's so torturous because it means you meet somebody and they have to transform. Once you love them, fuck that. I think the key is that you identify imperfections or, uh, or you identify an essence and you connect with that essence and it bonds. And I wanted somebody in my, in my version of the movie, she's always been not human. She's always been an amphibian of some sort. And she sees him and recognizes an essence. To me, that's love. You co-wrote. Yeah, with, with Vanessa. And, and uh, I thought that was very moving. And of course, the first budget we did was 35 million. And I went to say, would you like to make a, a creature from the Black Lagoon as directed by Douglas and in black and white originally. Right. And uh, Searchlight said, in black and white, 15 million, in color, 19.5. And I said, I'll take color. And, 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 uh, and I started, it, it took a while to crack it, but... but uh, crack it in terms of the writing. Yeah, because Vanessa... Well, describe for people that are directors as well, what's that process for you? You've written how many screenplays or co-wrote? Uh, 28. So you, you, you are a writer-director of, yeah. of the highest order. Mm -hmm. And when you're co-writing with somebody, do you just have a natural battery with them? Or do you sometimes have some conflict with them about ideas? No, what I say, I always start by writing an outline that is between 70 pages and 90 pages. <laughs> That's the outline. And then I... Or it's almost a first draft. Then I give it to them and say, do whatever you want. Whatever you want. Don't tell me what's wrong. Don't call me. Just do whatever you want. We can always undo. But if I don't give you this freedom, I'll never know what you want on adultery. Really feel. Yeah, you will be executing what I want. So the co-writer does whatever they want. Then it comes back, and I either love it or hate it. You fucking idiot. Yes. Yeah. But then, then I go... It should have been this other thing. <laughs> or I go, this is fantastic. I would have never thought about it. Right. And, 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 and there is a, sometimes, um, for example, I write 20, 30 pages, just a beat sheet. And then they, they, they do the first draft. And then I react. I mean, it varies. Casting. Casting I do, I write for actors. I write specifically. Do you see actors in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the, in the, in the constellation? I can't, That's it is my wife. wife. Hold on. <laughs> Is that you, sweetie? I'm on stage right now. Hold on. Guillermo del Toro is going to tell you something very important right now. Hey. Very good. Muy bien. Uh, Al Alec is polychrome. <laughs> he will explain when he gets home. Me encantará. 
I'll take it. <laughs> Yo ahorita le paso el teléfono a Alex. Y... I'll take it. <clears throat> Honey, I'm on stage in front of hundreds of people, and I just gave uh, Del Toro all the cash I had in my pocket to Is thank this all? For, for, for a second. I'm a polychrome, honey, okay? I'm a polychrome. I gotta call you back, okay? Are you okay, sweetie? I gotta call you back. Uh, in about uh, half an hour. Bye. Uh, um, um. <clears throat> 202. Okay. <laughs> 202, that's much more I than become, I have. I thought I could become a producer on your next movie. Um, the, uh, but but a little back end. But, but you ahead. know, the, the process for me... But do so, you see, what I was going to say before we were so rudely interrupted, mm -hmm. was that, do you see like this pantheon of actors out there you want to work with? Yeah. And you go, ah, and you write for them? Like, yeah, I saw Sally Hawkins, and I thought this is the most powerful presence I've seen in ages. It's so empathetic. It's, been, it's, it's amazing. And I thought, uh, I'm going to write for her. Oh. I didn't know... Uh, I did Blue Jasmine with her. Yeah. Fall in love with her. Yeah. She's fantastic, and I, I love when she says... Uh, she doesn't say perfume, she says, uh, oh, I don't remember, but she, she's so specific. Yeah. She's, uh, for me, a genius, and I wrote it for her, and then if it doesn't happen with them, I, I don't make the movie. I really don't see the point of doing it with somebody else. Michael Shannon. Shannon. Wrote it for Shannon, because I think Shannon is one of the top five actors working today. I accept it, yeah. And, and he has an amazing... He has... He has such a control uh, of the smallest gesture. And he's incredibly precise. You know, he's the opposite. Like, he, he always matches everything, which I adore. But, but he, he also gives you different colors. And so, Octavia, every, every actor I write for. I've been doing that since Kronos. Uh, I wrote Hellboy specifically for Ron Perlman. And, and, and we waited eight years. Everybody said, no, no, no. Uh, they said, who's the star, Ron Perlman? No. And, and I knew he was the only guy that could do it. And he was your Al Pacino. Yeah, yes. He's, he's my compadre, man. And, 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 uh, and what you were talking about, the video, when we were shooting Kronos, uh, he says, you have video assistant? I go, no. And then one day we finished take three or four. And he says, oh, can we do one more? I said, no. We're out. Of what? I said, of film. Literally. You don't have any more reels. I love Shannon because, you know, in acting, you see people who, and they, and they have the gift, they have the ability, I don't want to name names, but they stay in a certain genre because yeah. that's what works, and that's what they get paid to do. And, uh, uh, but they, when they deviate, sometimes you see, uh, you know, startling results when they kind of get off their, their normal track. Yeah. And Shannon, when he plays the negative value, he yeah. still real, realizes that it's, 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 it's storytelling. I, I, I don't want to say bad guy, but he's no, a guy... You know. I think he is a rare guy that, to me, okay? He brings vulnerability to the bad guys and menace to the good guys. Yeah. And, and what I love, uh, uh, when I was talking to him on the beginning, he said, is, is this a bad guy? He said, no, I think to me, he is the most, the loneliest character in the film. Right. I think, in fact, for me in Shape of Water, he is the only lonely character in the movie. He's, the, he's completely loneliest, yeah. the loneliest, and, and that gave him the key. It's like Michael Madsen in Free Willy. 
You know, <laughs> you think of Michael Madsen in this tear-jerking thing. You know, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. He's torturing people in, in uh, Tarantino movies. But you watch, you go, oh, this is perfect. It's beautiful. You know, to bring that color I to, think, to the, to the I, picture. I, I'm very. I, I was very attracted to making a story. Uh, I've always fascinated. I'm fascinated by the bad guys. For me, for example, Crimson Peak. I made it because of uh, the bad guys. Uh, Jessica Chastain's uh, character and Thomas Sharp, which is uh, a beautiful, flawed uh, characters that I, I feel the tragedy of them. I, I think the writing for an actress specifically, I wrote for Jessica, I, you know, and, and it was very specific. She was the pillar for that project. When you have great, when guys commit and they play those parts, I mean, there's a lot of bad guys in some of your films. <clears throat> and they play those parts. It's just so thrilling to me, you know. Like, like even a movie that's an insane, uh, you know, car crash, like Human Centipede. Oh my you know? God! But you see the guy who's the bad guy in that, and you're like, you're watching the movie, and the guy's like, "You say your car broke down, <laughs> and you're here, and no one knows you are here in this area." <laughs> and these two girls are like, "Yes, our car broke. You want to come in and use the phone?" <laughs> And they're like, yes, yes. He goes, please come in. <laughs> and this guy, you can't take your eyes off him. He's well, mesmerized. He, he, Hitchcock had that maxim, which is true. The better the bad guy, the better the film. Yeah. You know, and I think... Uh, Robert Walker. Robert Walker. Oh, you Amazing. And he, he brought uh, a dimension to that character, Bruno. Uh, oh. A sickness to that character. It, it, it's probably so. Storyboarding. Mm-hmm. You do all... I mean, Religiously. Yeah, like, yeah. But... but but what I, you want to talk about your storyboarding. I storyboard myself. Yes, I would imagine. I, I draw myself, and I what I do is I, I I hire someone to do nice storyboards for the budgeting for BFX companies. But the the real storyboards are my doodles in the morning. I wake up early, 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 and I uh, put my earphones and play movie music and storyboard. You play movie music. Movie music and storyboard. And then I, I arrive... Give me an example of the movie music that, that takes you there. The, depends on the... For example, with, uh, with The Shape of Water, it was George De La Rue and Nino Rota. You know, those, and, and Punch Drunk Love. Those were the, the soundtracks I would listen to. And, and then I arrived to the set an hour and a half before anyone, not my DP, and I walked the set and I grab a little... Uh, staircase and I climb a little because uh, through the years, what happened to me is the still photographer after the days were over you would look at the still photography and they had better angles than you and you go, why am I so lazy that I didn't see this? So I arrive now an hour and a half early and I make sure I get better angles than the still photographer right, 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 right. and I walk all You walk up to the still photographer and go shh, don't tell anybody <laughs> but if you were to shoot this scene would you be I wouldn't, yeah and then, and then the storyboards, what I do is I, 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 I do 30, 40 setups on the storyboards. And then I edit, I literally edit on the storyboards. I can cut a scene there. I know what frame I need. And I know which storyboards are what I call meat and which storyboards are gravy. Mm-hmm. I go, this one can go and doesn't affect, this one can go. And what I do is every day, Every day I cut the day before. So if you come in on Monday, the fourth week of my shoot, you will see the entire movie, the four weeks edited. 
completely. But I want to ask you about that, about the, the sacred moment of the actual Oedipus. You know, when you say that about, uh, uh, like, in, in whatever way I can or cannot influence, you know, what happens on the set in terms of the, the, the way we're right. going to do the scene, uh, that thing you just said about uh, meat and gravy, I'll say to people, let's do the scene at three speeds. Yeah. Let's do it at the, at the pace that we, we feel it. We're feeling our way through it. Mm-hmm. Let's do it a little faster. Then let's really, really give this scene the stick of like a racehorse analogy. We're going to give the horse the stick all the way to the yeah. finish line. Yeah. Just bite the cues, take out the paws, yeah. really pace it up. Because, uh, and then when we're shooting, I'll say, you can't love every scene. Yes. You know, we can like them. Yeah. But, but let's, let's, if, the, if the script says, Bob pulls up in a taxi, runs up the stairs to the hotel. Yes. Why don't we just pull the car up and if, walk into the hotel? If everything is a complete meal, yeah. you... Let's get that over so we can luxuriate on the other yes. scenes. Uh-huh. Now, I mean, obviously... You, in the you, mo- and you, I hate the shots that I call the Seinfelds, which are an establishing... I try to avoid Seinfelds. I have, a, I have two Seinfelds on Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. I want to do a movie with you one day, and I want to stand behind you. I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> but but what 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 you were talking about is this is important. The storyboards are there, so you have everything planned, and now you work with your actors, and now you improvise, and now you discover because you have a backup plan. Mm-hmm. You know, you say, look, this is the way I. You uh, what happens that morning? I'm alone an hour and a half. I bored. Blah blah blah. The DP comes in, I say, this is the way we're blocking it, I think. The actors come in and we block. And then uh, somebody will say, what if I sit down in the middle of this line? And you go, that's a great idea. Or that's a terrible idea because of this. No, 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 no. also, I got a couple more questions. I, I don't know if we're going to take questions from the audience, but I, I, want, I want to say that, that, that the, uh, uh, I mean, obviously in, 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 the, in the arc of your career where you were at this fantastic place over the last many years, and doing all these really, really very uh, exotic films. Very exotic. But on a cinematic level, I mean. I mean, very, very... Uh, you must have your choice of directors of photography around the world. Yeah. Do, do, do you... What's your definition of, like, have you made films with the same DPs over the years? Yeah. You have- I repeat a lot. Uh, I, with the DP, is very simple. Uh, the relationship is very simple. I say, I choose the lens, the composition, and the movement, and the, 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 the equipment. And you, you do the light. You do whatever you want with light because I trust your light. Right. And now and then, if they have an idea, we discuss it. But uh, but 99. You're very muscular about the, about the yeah, composition. Yeah, very much because to me, uh, it's a valet between the camera and the actors, and because the camera is the the eyes of the audience. Now, as Houston said, there are only two things: you can go closer or you can go yeah. away, and you can go up or you can go down. Those are simple choices. But when you, for example. Uh, I can tell you, because it's music and sym- symphony, a passage with a camera can be a largo or staccato or whatever. I remember be- uh, there's a beautiful shot in the first Mad Max George Miller did. He, he presents your Max cleaning, uh, preparing, and it's all close-ups. You don't see the guy. You see details. You know, and it's very, uh, uh, very Prussian. You know, bam, bam. You know, and then... The cars crash, and Max gets out of the car, and he walks, and the camera goes to him, pushes in, and jibs up, and he removes his glasses. Looks better than this. And he removes his glasses, and it's such a glorious, symphonic, balletic moment, which you revealed. And I I always say the camera should never be accidental. Should never be, oh, it looks good. No, what is it telling you? Is it taking you closer? You want to... You know, what actors, uh, Brando used to say, right? 
If you want, if you want them to pay attention, whisper. And you do the same with the camera. Do you want to? Do you want to listen a little? And I always keep the camera curious, like somebody that is trying to get a better look at the scene. It's always I, I, moving. I would make films with. I mean, I had the great fortune to work with some of the greatest cinematographers in history and make these films with Ball House and all these famous people, Tak Fujimoto and Juan Ruiz and Chia and so forth, great, great DPs, too many to name. And uh, we were John Toll. And I, I found that you know many actors wanted to avail themselves of this kind of education on the set of a film over many years to learn about lenses and cutting they and have crossing the line. And I was the opposite. They would say to me, you want to come and look through the lens and we want to show you, and I would look at them and go, I really don't care what you do. Uh, it's not going to have any effect on what I do. I'm going to do, I was like, you guys are the science department and I'm the acting department. And I, I didn't want to become self-conscious about that, about acting for the camera in that you way. You kept it that way all these years? All my life, I've never changed. I, I, just, I, I just sit there and I go, fellas, you know, you want 40, 60, 90, who gives a shit? I'm going to go, I'm going to say, I love you, Mary, or bang, you're dead, or what I'm going to do. I just got to focus on that. You focus on that, I'm going to focus on that, you know? I think that, I think that the important thing for me is... messed with me. Well, no, I think that uh, if that works for you, that yeah. works for you. Yeah. And, and, and well, it's I worked think, a little bit for me. Well, I, I, I think I, I, I met with a, one of the great actors, I think, working today. I won't say the name, but he said something at lunch that was very curious. We were having lunch talking about how we work. I said, well, I like sometimes the camera leads, sometimes you lead, and we'll talk about that. And he said, I find that I do some of my best work my back to the camera. I go, oh, very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but it actually, I actually understood it. I mean, some of the some of the real emotion he could generate was when the camera was. But, the, but, but that enter, enter the frame or that savvy with the. I mean, I've told this story before, so forgive me. But that savvy with the camera. I did a movie with Tony Hopkins mm -hmm. and the director Lee Tamahoy. He'd say, "All right, great, man, God, great God, we do this movie. movie. We do this movie. The Edge. Goddamn, you're very sweet. We, we love that. Fire movie. from water. We, we, yeah, we're <laughs> fire from ice, Bob. From ice. So, so, so Tony Hopkins is there, and Lee Tamahoy says, uh, "He says, all right, Tony, you men are lost in the forest. He's from New Zealand." He said, you're there, you're starving, you've got to try to find your way up, find some sticks, make a fire, find something to eat. You're here lost in the forest. Tony, what do you have in mind? And literally Tony Hopkins goes, he says, <clears throat> I thought my character would walk over here and stand alone amongst this stand of Douglas firs with a glacier-fed stream spilling over my shoulder, a herd of caribou in the distance. <laughs> and Tony would pick the spot that was the most picturesque spot, and his character would walk over to that spot in the scene and stand there. And Lee Tamahoy would go, fantastic, nine sizes on Tony over here, quick pop of Alec, time permitting over there. <laughs> nine cameras on Tony, the glacier-fed stream, the herd of caribou, day two. All right, Tony, you're lost in the forest. You and Alec, what do you have in mind? I thought I would walk over here. <laughs> stand on this massive granitic outcropping. The glacier behind my shoulder, and it was a fantastic trick pop of Alec, time permitting. 18 cameras on Tony over here, and he knew, like, that the set, like, what's the night, the juiciest, most rich-looking part of the set? I think that you learn from every. I mean, there, when people say, "How do you learn directing?" You learn it every day from everything. Yeah. I think that's a discipline that comes from theater, because your composition is your movement on the proscenium. But you, and you do have that tendency where, the, where the, the camera is like the proscenium where you're triangulating. In the theater, I'm talking to you, but I'm kind of 
talking in a triangle yeah. to open up to them. And you know what they're looking at, yeah, by the yeah. way. You know how it looks. I think that uh, I've, I've, I've developed video games. I have commanded animated series. I have, because you learn from everything. Learning how to direct the attention of the player on a video game gives you so many more verbs and solutions that you don't get. And as an actor, it's the same thing. I mean, we are, we are basically spies that are socially inept, and we're observing everything and putting it in our pocket to use later. Like we're spies looking at how humans behave, what they do, what they don't do, where real drama comes from, and we put it in a little pocket for later use. And, and when are you gonna learn a great moment? It can happen in a light stop. You know, when you're looking at someone putting their makeup really quick or eating a sandwich and changing the dial, it can happen at the dentist's office. And you have to be always aware that nothing is alien to your craft. When people say, I get bored on a line or waiting at the doctors, then you're not a director. You shouldn't be bored. You should be always watching. Uh, someone in the wings is looking at me going, shut the fuck up. <laughs> shut up. We've run out of time. But I want to just two last quick questions. One is, uh, right of time. But, uh, so, so I want to say quickly, so you, you write and, and, and create your own stuff, and everybody talks about the Universal Library is going to come out again, the horror library, yeah. and you do remakes. Yeah. You never want to do a remake of a famous horror movie? You know, uh, your version. I, I did. I, I tried. I actually pitched the love story of The Shape of Water, basically, for Creature. Right. I went to Universal, and I said, and, they, uh, and then they screw. And <laughs> they would go. Can we validate your parking, sir? No? <laughs> Goodbye. But I, I was trying for many, many years that. And I have an idea, of course, to do Frankenstein and Bride in a particular way. But it, I don't think it's going to happen. Look, I, I'm, I, I really believe that um, the things, the, the movies I do, most of the time, I do them because the premise is so absolutely bonkers. It's like I go, I say, I want to do a fairy, anti-fascist fairy tale set against the backdrop of the Civil War in Spain. Yeah. For it's a what? blockbuster. It's a blockbuster. I want to do a Douglas Sirk-directed sexual uh, story about a creature. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, this idea, to me, is the combination of those flavors. And I don't think I can do a regular movie. I don't think I can. I mean, everything I've done, even the most commercially viable ones, you know, they have some weirdness in them. And I always try things that should not be done. Right. <laughs> and, and you do them because I do think this, when you're in a set and you have absorbed a hundred years of cinema, which you, you, you can and you are no matter what, you, your first instinct, the regular instinct is the wrong instinct. You have to stop and say, okay, that's the way it would normally happen in a movie. What can we do that is different? Right, right. And you stop yourself. You have to stop yourself. And the older you get, the more you want to go different. So I'm not sure that they will entrust me with any right. legacy. Maybe, maybe they want something more straightforward. No, no. Let, let me just say this. First of all, I've enjoyed doing this with you me immeasurably too. because let's face facts. May, may They're I, never going to invite me may back I, here may again. I tell them, never going to ask me back. May, may, I, may I tell them, uh, I, I mean, if you haven't seen him, he's the, the greatest host, but he's also the greatest guest. I highly recommend 
His episode of all, all episodes in comedians in cars getting. Thank up. you, thank you. My legacy. Amazing. Um, but I want to finish. I want to finish by saying that in my lifetime, there are four or five directors who bring a, a as I said, the artistic soul. You know, Coppola is certainly one. I mean, the, 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 what they, the gifts they have, the God-given gifts they have, their training, their experience, uh, uh, their dedication, all these things, this ineffable thing, this, this magical thing, this soul of the artist that has found its way to express itself at the highest level of filmmaking. Ladies and gentlemen, Guillermo Tostor. Thank you. The Tribeca Film Festival takes place every year in New York City. To learn more about all of our programs, visit TribecaFilm.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.